Welcome to this week's episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Michelle Hamadash, and this week we're joined in the studio by my dear friend, Alison Lissa, who is a writer, poet, playwright, brilliant teacher and mentor, community theatre director, volunteer tutor at the Sydney Story Factory, and much, much more. Alison calls herself a water of words, and Alison is also going to give us a welcome to country, a first for From the Lighthouse, and something that I thank Alison deeply for. I was welcomed to this country by my father, who came here when he was 16 as a boat person, but that was back a long time ago, and he was here as an economic migrant from England and no longer remembered as a boat person, but remembered as a conqueror. And that patriarch, that father conqueror, sat inside me for all of his lifetime, guiding me to be not a writer, but a wife. And I feel that I always disappointed him. And through that disappointment, over many, many years of trying, I've come to catch some outsider's understanding of what it must be like not to be me, a non-Aboriginal person, but to be the person whose stolen land I'm standing on, the person whose theatre and performance and language was taken from them by my father and his view of empire and his ancestry, his Britishness, his Englishness, his class-ridden, status-ridden, country-ridden language. And that is why I'm, I'm not equipped to give a welcome to country, but I'm equipped to recognize that it is stolen ground that I stand on. And I'm also equipped to be furious with the words I discovered yesterday from the government's new budget the Conservative government's budget, where they're planning to set aside some tens of millions of dollars for the 250th, if I've got the dates right, anniversary of the coming of Captain Cook. And, there, and this money, I think, would be better spent paying the rent, paying respect to the Indigenous elders. And I thank the Indigenous elders, past and present, including ones like Jack Davis, who wrote plays... Alison, thank you very much for your timely welcome to country. And I think that uh, you've really reminded us of what the welcome to country is. And you've also um, pointed out some of the in, in unimaginable um, injustices that occurred and continue to occur um, to this day. So for that, I thank you, Alison. Um, Alison, it's been 37 years since your landmark play Pinball was first performed at Sydney's Nimrod Theatre, a play that was revived at the 2013 LGP LGBTIQ Mardi Gras. It's a play that is taught at universities in the UK and is still inspiring young women playwrights in Australia today. Alison, can you reflect on Pinball for us now? Well, Pinball had two kinds of reception. One was a standing ovation from the first audience who saw it as a reading at Nimrod Theatre in the early part of 1980 when the Women in Theatre Project, funded by the Australia Council, had provided money for a series of play readings of women's work. And uh, Max Gillies played Solomon, 
the in in this reading rehearsed reading and and Solomon is the wise presumably judge who presides over the course of the action of the play and he is at once the modern patriarch he's at once my father he is also the Solomon of biblical times and he's the Solomon in charge of the court and uh Solomon's story of dividing the child in two, the child uh, to decide who's the right mother, is the story that I hinge Pinball on, because Pinball was a play about a lesbian custody case. Which in itself is part of what made it such a groundbreaking piece of theatre, and I think probably also um, theatre that was ahead of its time um, in in many respects, which... that's that's true, Michelle, and that's why I speak of two strands of reception. The feminists who saw for the first time on a Sydney stage women that we saw and we knew through our lives as women who who had the power to embody themselves, that play, when it came to be produced, was also witnessed by people who did not feel that women had the right to do that. And those people who reviewed it for major media, such as the Sydney Morning Herald, either put it in in a box where it would be of what they called limited appeal to a subset, a subculture. And I thought, what's a subculture? Does that mean the culture that's underwater? Or does that mean the culture that doesn't really count? Or if they didn't give it to a subculture of lunatic feminists who would come along and enjoy it, they called it a failure. Because I I think it's really important to articulate just what was at stake with your play. Um, I think it's harder today to remember um, just the sort of work that Pinball was doing um, because it was effectively arguing um, for a a legal system, uh, a social system that granted equal rights to women, lesbian women, to both raise and create and invent and imagine family um, outside of a a conservative patriarchal culture that actually couldn't um, assume, subsume it and and thus needed to eradicate, excise it. Um, and, and I think we can see today in the changing, in, in, in the changing, um, ethos, um, the hard work that, uh, you and your generation did, um, to bring us to this, to this not equitable, but more equitable place. Um, how, how do you see that, Alison? I think what you're saying, Michelle, is so important because what I did in my play was to walk the very tightrope between comedy and tragedy. And my aim in doing that was to bring the lesbian custody case to the stage so that people could open up the, 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 the space of, of language through the comedy to subvert the ancient patriarchal tradition of a tragedy which always and usually often sacrificed the woman to keep the status quo. And this 
play had arisen not because it was my own life story, but I, obviously I brought elements of my own personal experience into it, but because a friend had stopped me at um, a women's rally for women's rights to ask me to buy raffle tickets. She was trying to raise money for the lesbian custody case that she and her female partner were fighting in the courts. And much of what I used in the court that Solomon runs in the play were transcripts from the court. The terrible things that the judges had put to those women, I put into the play. And that was found very alienating, I think, from people who stood outside and wanted women to be quiet. So what sort of reception did Pinball have? Um, can can you give us an example of... Well, um, as I say, the mainstream critics were very down on it. But... I, can, I became can you give us a sense of, of of just how scathing because I I think that um, at thirty seven years down the track um, it, it's probably hard for us to sort of imagine um, what you might have gone through and this and and also the scale of it. Are you would you would you feel comfortable sort of sharing that with us? Um, well, one of, one of the reasons I have become a teacher and a mentor is that the the power that I have learned from that experience hasn't always resulted in my being able to do my own writing, but it's resulted in a level of empathy that I'm now able to give to younger writers. And I find that that gift, that gift of being the waterer of words for others, is a very crucial part of my work. And as when when Pinball was on, I was in a in a small circle of people quite famous for that, because the women who were coming to see it had had not seen women like that presented very much on Australian stages at all. And I was stopped one day on a platform at Central Station by a woman who recognized me. And she said, I've come to thank you for your play Pinball. I've been to see it three times. And the third time I took my mother. And I was able to come out to my mother as a lesbian. And for me, that was an extraordinary experience. And then in 1996, which was a decade and a half later, the play was put on by an amateur theatre group in Newcastle to the north of Sydney. And on the closing night, I went back up to Newcastle for the staff party. And one of the cast drew me aside and she said, I just wanted to thank you for writing your play because it enabled me to come out to my daughter. And I wept again. And then, more recently, two younger women than myself, mid-career women, Donna Abila and Catherine Farga, both of them wonderful, wonderful playwrights and and, uh, active teachers as well. They both found my play in the anthology in which it was published in Australia, in Australian Gay and Lesbian Plays, published by Currency Press. And they had read it before they met me. And they had found that it gave them permission to write. 
And, and I also found to my utter astonishment that when the edition in 1985 was published by Methuen in London and New York, edited by Micheline Wanda, I thought to myself, well, the critics might have ripped me to pieces in Australia, but now I can get an agent to encourage me to write another play. And I took it to a literary agent in Sydney who handed it back a few days later with the words, well, the writing's good, but the subject matter, I don't see how anyone could put that on. Look, and I think you've raised an incredibly important point, and, and I think it allows us to think through uh, the, the kinds of... Um, the really quite vicious response that you got in a very public forum, um, because we're talking about uh, reviews in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, where your play was um, profoundly dished. Well, I, I do want to say for a new generation, the Sydney Morning Herald was the place that theatre goers went to look for things or other newspapers. There wasn't any social media, no internet then. No, and, and, and so on a national level to have your play denigrated in, 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 in such a public forum, the personal cost is one thing I think that really needs to be acknowledged, having been your very dear friend for so many years. But I think also, uh, in, in some sense, it's, it's a measure of the degree to which an Australian society wasn't ready for what you were doing um, and perhaps may still not be ready because, in some sense, the measure of, of, a, of, a, of a healthy literary community and a healthy theatre-going community is its ability to run risks and to do something that breaks with the status quo. And any time that you can see a community that fails to um, run those risks, then it's a fairly sure message that that community hasn't yet found its feet. Um, and the very fact, which is completely unsurprising to me, having read your work, your um, plays, your poems, etc., that it's um, taken up uh, in the UK, taught on university curricula, um, is perhaps a, a measure of the degree to which, you know, Australia really still does need to learn to be bolder um, and to realise that this is the mechanism of change. This is one of the mechanisms of change, is disturbance. Um, and I'm certainly uh, honoured to, to count you as my friend, Alison. Um now, obviously, pinball was uh, very early on in, in your career, and it must have, um, you know, sort of had a tremendous impact on you. But what are some of the themes and ideas that you've carried through from pinball into your more recent work, like, for example, The Boiling Frog, um, another play? One of the things I found in writing both plays was the difficulty of creating a protagonist who would take action. Because when I, we were brought up as I was, that you would lean on the right arm of your father. But may I just take a moment just to say, uh, because you did let me know in the beginning that you were quite happy and proud to be an, um, introduced as 71, which I am absolutely um, flawed because I'd never imagined you were 71. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that it is important to make it clear for our reader, for our listeners that um, you are speaking from the wealth of wisdom of a 71-year-old. 
Um, yes. So I, I carried inside me my father's embodiment of me. And in Pinball, I challenged that by with a group of family characters. I had then to carry that embodiment, which I had broken apart in Pinball by letting the women win, by creating a comic alternative ending. And I'd modelled that comic alternative ending in Pinball on Shakespeare's A Merchant of Venice. Because in A Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare dresses Portia in the garb of a man, and she enters the court to argue for mercy. And in Pinball, I, cre I gave that garb of a man, that cloak of authority, of academia, of enlightenment, of law, of reason, to my character, a character called Vandalope. And her name, Vandalope, is, is my elision of Vandal and Hope. And she dressed as in overalls covered in badges that said things like um, abortion is the woman's right to choose or dead men don't rape. <laughs> and <laughs> for real, Mark. for real. I remember taking my son who was then uh, oh, possibly about eight or nine years old to a women's liberation march through the centre of Sydney and when he saw the women at the front shouting and chanting and some of them wearing those T-shirts with a target and a gun saying, dead men don't rape, he said, Ali, he always called me Ali, I want to go home. And I said, you're right, we're going home right now. So, I, I've, so I'll come back to that thread in a moment. So I had broken open the real ending of the play, which was that the judge, the Solomon, was going to give custody of the boy to the ex-husband and his new wife, to the nuclear family. And I'd used comedy to create that false ending through the woman, the vandal, the hope, coming into the court dressed as a man and bamboozling Solomon, which is what Portia does in The Merchant of Venice. And the reviewer in the Sydney Morning Herald couldn't bear that I had broken the drama, that I had broken the various fragments of drama into comedy and tragedy. Now, when I tried to take that active protagonist, Vandalope, and Vandalope characterizes herself in Pinball as an anarcho-lesbian bicyclist, when I tried to take her into my new play, The Boiling Frog, which was my look not just as how women couldn't find the ground under their feet because they embodied the patriarch and they had to fight that embodiment. In, in The Boiling Frog, a few years later, I wanted to look at how that ground included science and art and the rapid expansion of the arms race which was happening in the world at that time. But I had, something had snapped inside me in the confidence as a result of the reception. And it was very, very hard for me to envisage a protagonist who would take action. I, I created instead a character who faltered when action was needed. And I feel that that play, The Boiling Frog, has that, instead of 
breaking the back of the patriarchy. It absorbed a kind of a flaw in it. But at the same time, I did learn that as writers, it is so important for us to trust our own voice. And there will always be voices who will tell us to silence that voice. I want to read you a speech from Pinball because this was a speech that somebody tried to, to censor. And that somebody was actually farther to the left than I was. I was sharing a house. I'd come from, in 1973, I'd come from the country where I'd been teaching in a private girls' school. I was happily married with a small child. I was a member of the local Girl Guides troop where I led the girls to campfires and Anzac Day marches because I was the guide leader. Yes, it's crazy to remember. I had moved from there. My, my dear husband and I had realized that since he was gay, we did need to separate and go our other lives. And I still love him dearly for he taught me so much about drama and music and poetry. But I had moved from that, from that nuclear family, to living in shared households in what was then a very cheap to live in, 1973, in a city. I was in Camperdown. And sharing the house were members of Sydney's gay and lesbian, uh, the only gay at that time, gay liberation movement. Dennis Altman was one who came to that house. And there were builders' labourers who were part of the Green Band movement that was saving large swatches of Sydney from the bulldozers at that time. We need them back again. And one of those women who was herself an anarchist, uh, a, a communist, she thought I was an anarchist, she was a communist and a builder's labourer. And when she came to the reading of the play, she came back and she told me to censor it. And it's a scene where Vandelope is pushed to realise that she has to help these two friends of hers, who are the lesbian mothers, gain, gain custody of the child. Because she's been saying to the lesbian mother, the, the, the biological mother, let go of the boy. Let go of the boy. They'll stick the kid in an old school tie. They'll keep his vowels open and try to teach him to despise us. But he won't turn out like them. He's been with you. He's got your sensitive world with him in here, her head, and in here, her heart. And he's missed out on one or two of the cockfights that usually come with the balls. And the lesbian mother says... You mean he's not a macho pig after all and I still have to give him up? And Vandelope says, but it's safe to let go of him. He doesn't throw beer cans at lyrebirds. Sure, he'll love life with the upwardly mobile because, of course, the husband and wife have much more money. Until he realises he has to swap honesty for knives and forks. And Thene, the lesbian mother, is very upset about this. She says, I don't care what fancy reasons you give up, you think up, and I don't care if he grows cloven hoofs as well as a tail, he's my kid. And Vandelope says, I know it's hard, but are you an axis? That's the name of the lesbian mother's lesbian partner. I know it's hard, but are you and Axis going to ruin your lives and alienate your friends just to save Alabaster from the nuclear family? And Thene says, I love him, 
and I'll be as emotional and irrational as I like and I won't let anyone take him away, whether they attack from the right or they attack from the left, and everyone's screaming at me. It's for your own good, you understand, and we're sure it's in the best interests of the child. And she runs out, and we don't know for a while whether she's ever going to come back. And after she's gone, Vandelope left alone there, says, Run after her, to, to the lover. Run after her. Tell her I didn't understand she was stuck on him. Tell her I'll help. We'll raise the money and fight. And then left alone, Vandelope says, We could do with a good campaign. We're down on morale. And those were the words that my friend, housemate, wanted me to cut. She said, You can't wash our dirty linen in public. You can't let anyone out there in the public know that there are divisions within the party, divisions within the women's movement. You can't say, We could do with a good campaign. We're down on morale. Now that brings me to a similar moment where censorship gets attempted. And that happened four years, three years later, when my second play, The Boiling Frog, was on at Nimrod Theatre. And that was being directed by John Bell. And there was a reading of it with the cast earlier than that, where one of the actors wanted me to cut one of the lines. And this is the speech. And in this play was very influenced by Patrick White. I went to a rally when he was still alive, obviously. And uh, we were there near the art gallery, out there in the domain. And he was. it was a rally against nuclear war. And he gave us this extraordinary image, the rags of flesh. And he said, I'm glad I'm an old man, and I'm glad I have no children. And I wanted to write a message for the people who are thinking of, as Patrick White was, I'm sure, of everybody's children. And my protagonist here, I called Joan, after the very famous one of the Ark, and she travels from the 17th century and where the black, the plague was harrowing London through to the 18th century, early 18th century, where so many were dying in the English coal mines and the cart moved from carrying plague victims to carrying victims from the mine explosion to the 20th century, where she comes, she joins a group of demonstrators rather like the women of Greenham Common who demonstrated against the cruise missiles. Only this time she's pushing not a handmade wooden cart, but a supermarket trolley. And she breaks in with the bolt cutters to the nuclear power plant, and she's tested up there by a scientist for radioactivity. I can't feel anything except my skin hurts from washing and that horrible soap. You, she's talking to the scientist, you put that bit of plutonium on my earth when it wasn't there before. How long before it's going to hurt? And he says, we don't even know for certain that it will. 
cancer may or may not develop, and when it does, it has no little flag attached saying cigarettes or plutonium. And Joan says, But if it does start to hurt, I know it will hurt a lot, and you'll give me more poison to stop it, and I will still have to die, and the biggest hurting will be here in my heart because it wasn't necessary. And if you bury me in the earth or scatter my ashes, that bit of plutonium will not have gone away. It will blow about in the dust in a hundred years or a thousand years and some other creature will breathe it in and die hurting and not understanding why. Where you will have to plant me in lead and concrete, flowers will not grow and you will have to guard me forever. I feel cheated and I hate you for it. And the actor in our private reading with the cast said, you've got to cut those lines and I hate you for it because that's an awful thing to say. So there came the censorship again and a very wise woman, a feminist philosopher called Hester Eisenstein, who since I think has been working in in the United States of America, she said to me, look, with your first play you were just citing it among the women's world. In this one, where you're citing it as part of a bigger picture, they're going to attack you worse, which they did. And the one that hurt most was for that one, was the one in the bulletin which said, this playwright has no compassion. And <laughs> but It's I, breathtaking, isn't it? It's, it's breathtaking. absolutely breathtaking. But the guy actually, actually get, um, quite possibly understandably, um, wanting to deflect <laughs> from from the fear of that because I want to put the energy, and I've said this to myself so many times over the years, into making sure that any other writer I can work with won't have to be told you're not allowed to say that because I want writers to be able to say that. So can I read you a piece that I wrote uh, for young writers. Look, um, Alison, of course, um, because Alison has um, an enormous uh, wealth of experience teaching, mentoring, um, and also her wise words are contained in um, the new writer's survival guide, which is an introduction to the craft of writing published by Penguin in 1989. Um, So she's just, so Alison, please do um, read from your, um, your writing advice. Keep your own voice clear. Listen, listen to everything ideas, language, conversations, criticisms, suggestions. But do not distort your work to make it fit someone else's idea of perfect. It's hard to keep your voice clear. Some people will try to distort it because they want you to believe what they want to believe. Others because they are frightened of what you want to say or outraged by it and want to keep you quiet though they might not be honest with themselves or with you about their motives. Beware, too, of censoring yourself. Guilt and fear and the desire to be approved by other people 
can sit on a writer's shoulder and stifle courage before it comes out of the pen. Keep your courage, keep your voice, but listen, listen to everything. Look for people who will help you learn the craft of writing so that when you put your voice on paper, it is clear to other people as well as yourself. I send you courage. Alison, thank you so much. Um, I think one of the things that um, I'd really like us to have a chance to talk about is the work that you do with Sydney Story Factory. Um, before we move on to that, though, I, I would just like to say that there is so much um, that is that is painful in listening to you talk about your experiences. Um, and I think it takes such courage to come here and share um, that essentially both private experience of, 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 of pain, which it is to receive, um, you know, sort of such a public lambasting, and then on the same time to take and to have the courage to, 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 to speak out and to continue to write. Uh, and I think one of the things that we sort of perhaps need to think about is the degree to which, uh, it's, it's actually the, the, the stories that, um, that, that, that shock us, that surprise us, that speak in, in, in languages that are unfamiliar, unrecognizable, uncomfortable. Um, that, that don't conform to our existing ideas of what good art is, that don't say the things that we feel should be said, but actually say things that make us feel uncomfortable and, uh, and wrong and make us sit up. Um, that's, that's, that's where it's at, isn't it? Uh, and, and I think that's what you've always done and how you've always lived. So thank you, Alison, for sharing that with us. Um, and you do an enormous amount of volunteer work. I don't think I've ever met anybody who gives so much of themselves. Um, so, so, so tell tell us a little bit about Sydney Story Factory and 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 what you do there. Sydney Story Factory uh, modelled on a group in San Francisco started by the American writer, U.S. American, Dave Eggers, and. Kath Keenan was one of the founders of the Sydney branch of it. And I've been working there as a volunteer tutor for about four years. And they give free writing workshops run by their storytellers with volunteer tutors like myself in attendance so that we have very small groups of children, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, for marginalised school students, primary and high school and they traveled from the Redfern headquarters out to lots of schools, especially in the western areas of Sydney and country towns. And uh, two years ago, the Sydney Story Factory started a novella project working with students mostly from western Sydney, they're students from marginalized backgrounds, and doing the second year of it, which was last year, Sydney Story Factory also worked with Southerly under the auspice by Michelle Hamadash, who, as associate editor, was able to help edit and publish three of the stories by the young people from Western Sydney high schools in the Southerly Long Apprenticeship issue, which uh, came out 
at the end of 2017. And those, those three students, brilliant pieces of writing for young people still at school, Victoria Bassett-Wilson, Alexander Lorenzon, and Vivian Pham. And novellas by each of those young people were published by the Sydney Story Factory. And this is what Richard and I put together as an introduction to the publication of the stories in the Southerly Journal. And, and to find a way into that story, I went back to my notebook for the notes that I'd made at the very, very first of those novella workshops that I went to. And as the Sydney Story Factory's storyteller-in-chief, Richard Short, who is also a brilliant poet, said this to those young high school students, don't judge the ideas, just get them down and you'll find the gems to create your story. Withhold judgment. You never know the sentence that will be good. I love that message of trust that Richard Short was offering to these high school students. And that, at the end of that year, in, in December 2016, there was publication of seven original novellas. And since 2012, when the Sydney Story Factory got started, thousands of young people have taken part in their creative writing and storytelling projects. And the second, the second series in Bankstown, and now we're into a third series in 2018, also at Bankstown, and moving later this year to the second centre that is opening up in Parramatta. And this is what I wrote about what mentoring means for me, and I can see that it means so much of that also for my fellow volunteer tutors and for the staff at the Sydney Story Factory, like Richard Short. To mentor young writers is not to teach, but to learn, not to prescribe, but to open the senses to discover oneself and the other, not to demand predetermined answers, but to grow an uncanny ability to ask the right questions. Like any act of life, of love, there's no place in creative writing for the whiff of judgment. Any peremptory punishment for some perceived non-standard use of spelling, tense, apostrophe, trope, or choice of words and the not-yet-written whirl of worlds and words will feel the sting, and the writer risks feeling the judgment as a failure and a fool. When the young writer's voice is trusted, the words appear, and then, when the first draft is there, the courage comes for the young writer to bring it to the workshop for the honing of the skills and the constructive feedback so that the writer can have the help to craft and polish their voice to a richer shine. Alison, thank you so much. I think you've shared so much wisdom, experience, insight, 
fabulous moments from the past, glimpses into Sydney over the decades. It's just been such an honour to have you and thank you. We'll, I think we've probably got more stories to uncover from you, Alison, so thank you very, very much. Um, it's been wonderful to be here with you this week. We're going to draw this week's podcast to a close please rate and review us on itunes uh if you'd like to leave some feedback or suggest have suggestions from from the lighthouse for future podcasts visit the website from the lighthouse.org thank you very much this is goodbye from michelle hammerdash and alison lisa thank you <laughs>